welcome to Fierce City, where we delve into the people, places and events from the history of the greatest capital city in the world, and our home, London. I'm Satu. And I'm PJ, and we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser-known history of London. Today, we're telling the story of Nell Gwynne and her rise to fame in 17th century London during the Restoration. Before I saw the eponymous play starring Gemma Arterton, I don't know if you saw it a few years ago. Your close personal friend. My close personal friend, Gemma (laughs) Arterton. All I knew about Nell Gwynne was basically that that was the name of a few pubs in London. But she is, of course, the famous mistress of Charles II. But whether you know anything about Nell or not, I defy you not to absolutely love her by the time you've heard her story. While Nell's mother may have ended her life in a ditch... Nell's son would become a duke. Her status as mistress led to people calling her the real Queen of England. Nell Gwynne was not just some beautiful ornamental woman, rather she was a boisterous, wily comedienne and actor. One Bishop Burnett described her as the indiscreetest and wildest creature that ever was in a court. She sounds like the kind of person I would like to have in my gang. Me too. (laughs) So, come along with us as we travel back to 17th century London to discover the life and the charms of Nell Gwynne. Because Nell was a fabulous lady after my own heart, her vanity means that we actually know her exact date of birth, and I'll tell you why. It's because she commissioned a personalised horoscope, and because of that we know that Venus was rising at the time of her birth, and also that she came into the world on Saturday the 2nd of February 1650. I knew she'd be an Aquarius. You're an Aquarius, right? Yeah. Uh, Nell was born during a dark period of London history, however, the Interregnum period, um, i.e. between kings. Yeah, I saw that word and I was like, Interregnum. You don't <laughs> really hear that. Interregnum. You don't really hear it often, do you? Um, almost never, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for obvious reasons. Um, but the period began on the day that Charles I lost his head, inconveniently, just around the corner from Downing Street, at the hands of Oliver Cromwell. You may have heard of him. And uh, his revolutionary. So Oliver Cromwell was in charge of England in the period between Charles I and Charles II coming back. The interregnum. Nice. London without the crown, led by the people. It sounds great, doesn't it? I suppose, yeah. It was terrible. This was not the case with Cromwell and Co. Because they were radical Puritans. And it's just a bad state of affairs. Cancelled Christmas, famously. You just don't want to live in that situation, especially in London. Yeah, so during this interregnum period, I'm loving that word. You are. Um, Fun was basically outlawed, Um, so the monarchy went, but so did everything else. Theatres were forcibly closed, public entertainment was just banned, and even things like, I quote, unnecessary walking became (laughs) illegal. People began to become increasingly God-fearing, and the seismic shift of a decapitated king made people think that the end was nigh and the reckoning would be upon the country. With Cromwell at the helm, Londoners were at pains to demonstrate that human pleasures were the last thing on their mind, and children were named things like abstinence, fear not, kill sin. So what a what a great selection of oh like not poppies or lilies. Hudson, Hudson. Mackenzies. There was also um, lamentation. Oh my god! So all these brilliant names. We should bring them back. Imagine if Nell had been called Lamentation Gwyn. What would they, what nickname would have stuck for her? Lammy. <laughs> Lammy. It was during this time that Nell was born then, um, a time where any woman who wasn't a mute baby provider was nothing short of a barbarous wretch. 
So said Cromwell himself, who sadly for no one died just eight years into his rule. Wow, like apparently we've we've set up a new hate figure for the podcast. I could I could hear the vitriol in my voice there. <laughs> If Nell Gwynne was born today, she would probably be on her fifth autobiography and have a Channel 4 show serialised about her childhood. But alas, the story of her childhood is largely unknown. We don't know where she was born, although obviously London stakes claim, but so do Oxford and Hereford. Uh, It just seems nobody can agree on that. There's no information about that, even though we've obviously got her star signs rising when she was born, so that's enough information. We do know that Nell's father died when she was young, and so she, her mother, and her sister all moved to London, and her mother soon set up a boardy house near Covent Garden. I think you can guess what a boardy house is. Well, I was about to say, it's like a pub, but with added brothel facilities. How convenient! Um, The strong waters, as we described in our gin panic episode, were the main draw to these boardy houses, but there were also young girls who would entertain the patrons, and there would be rooms upstairs for hire. Nell and her sister were unfortunately those girls, and a school education in the slums was just out of the question. Growing up, Nell didn't even know how to sign her own name, so she was illiterate. The slums where she lived took no prisoners, and it took real bravery and luck to survive as a child in London, let alone prosper. We can only assume Nell had both luck and a canny wit on her side. Meanwhile, Charles II, the son of the beheaded Charles I, was in exile abroad. His experience was no gap year, and he was in hiding, disguising himself as a pauper. Most kings were born with all the silver spoons in their mouths and want for nothing, but Charles was penniless. This gave him a unique perspective as a British monarch, and it allowed him to be a bit more unprejudiced and down-to-earth than your standard king. After Cromwell died in 1658, the time was finally right for Charles's return, and in 1660, the 30-year-old king returned to London as monarch. A great day! It was. Theatres came back. It was, and there was a huge street party when he came back, and there was a seven-hour procession bringing the king all the way through to Whitehall. But the king's exile did leave its scars. The experience made him a good fit to balance the idea of his divine power against the new will of the parliament and the voice of the people. Charles II knew firsthand how flimsy the whole monarchy thing was, and so he was decidedly non-dictatorial. So he'd learnt a bit from Charles I, because really, when you read into it, I can't remember if we've ever talked about it on the podcast before, but there were so many opportunities for Charles I to not get beheaded, and he just wouldn't take them because he believed so strongly in his own divine power as the king. Yeah, it wasn't like, oh, I'm in charge here, it was God has made me in charge. I am almost beyond human. Mm. And so with that comes a lot of hubris. And Charles II didn't have any of that in him. So instead, he spent his time doing things like patronising the arts. And he was said to have an insatiable appetite for various hobbies. I love that. I was about to say, you love hobbies. (laughs) I do think he's growing on me quite a lot as we learn about him. I just think people with hobbies tend to be more mentally healthy. There you go, you heard it here. <laughs> Literally whatever it is, like, and, and I'm assuming he was doing a nice jigsaw puzzle, a bit of embroidery. Well, I'm thinking probably it was more like hunting, um, but sure. He was, though, this ball of energy, and he was making the most of all these privileges that he didn't have in exile, so he could take up all these expensive hobbies now. He was also extremely sexually unrepressed, unlike probably many monarchs, and he enjoyed affairs with countless women without any discrimination whatsoever to their social status. When you think about it, because the kings the kings and queens are always so heavily observed all the time, I think that would make you very repressed in that regard. You never have any privacy. 
you never have any privacy. You think you're this kind of godlike creature. Right. And yeah, you, you obviously, when you get married, that everyone's around you watching you mm. kind of have your first sexual encounter. Doesn't sound like the best, most fertile ground for a joyous sexual life. Our other ball of energy, 10-year-old Nell, couldn't have missed the electric atmosphere brought about by the restoration of the monarchy. The spirit of London shifted and the theatres opened again and culture flourished. Most women of low class were prisoners to their fate, basically becoming prostitutes, and Nell was no exception. She was also sometimes a street seller of fruit and things like that with her sister Rose. At the age of 12, she took a lover. I mean, did she take... I don't know. Age of 12? She That's moved... true. <laughs> Doesn't sound like an independent decision. <laughs> no. Um, but she moved into his rooms above a pub near Drury Lane, which happened to also be right next to where a new theatre was being built by the King's Company, set up by Charles himself. The theatre was an obvious means for the advancement of women of low backgrounds, as the rich men who saw plays fancied appearing behind the curtain, both literally and metaphorically speaking. Ugh. The potential for social advancement came from the fact that the theatres Charles helped to set up were explicitly for gentlemen rather than your common average man. I suppose you think of kind of Shakespearean like theatre in the globe and all the people in the pit throwing rotten apples or whatever at the stage. Yes. Oh, and of course, all the actors were men then. This operated quite a bit more like a sort of dating agency for gentlemen and, you know, like beautiful and talented, but, you know, impecunious women. Sure. It was for the high class of society, not the... the Yeah, that's quite a big change. So Restoration Theatre was all about escapism, and this also helped the actors transcend to become the stars that people could project their fantasies onto. Charles's mission statement, for good or bad reasons, was explicit that women should be cast in female roles, something that was somewhat revolutionary at the time, as we've said. Whilst Nell was moving into her new home near the theatre, Charles married Queen Catherine of Braganza, the Portuguese princess. The king had a bevy of mistresses and illegitimate children, and one such mistress who rose to the top of the pack was Barbara Castlemaine. Despite protests from Catherine, the king was determined to have Barbara appointed in the queen's service so as to ensure respect and direct access to his favourite squeeze of the time. Barbara's a really interesting figure, actually. Like, when you read about her temperament and personality, she is like unbelievably forceful and aggressive as a person like she kind of sets the model for how to be the king's mistress i think she does quite a lot of groundwork that nell benefits from later meanwhile teenage nell Gwynne's entry to the world of the theater came about because one of her mum's friends was given permission to sell oranges lemons fruits sweetmeats and all manner of fruitiers and confectionery wares that's from the contract itself <laughs> um at this new theater and uh, Nell Gwynne and her sister were obviously natural choices for the task of sellers. Because they were pretty and boisterous, right? Absolutely, yeah. They worked six days a week at the theatre and took only a sixth of their own takings home. Oh, that's so frustrating. So they paid over five sixths of their money to the theatre. I think you'll find that's how today jobs work. No, my work does not take five sixths of the money. Oh wait, no, they totally do. Don't <laughs> yeah, they? that's right. <laughs> Sati realizes what capitalism is Bloody as well. Hell, live on mic, yeah, I really honestly have. Okay, cool. Moving on, the girls would be the channel for messages between members in the audience involved in a love tryst and to help spread gossip and intrigue. That does sound really fun. They were as much part of the spirit of the theatre as the actors were. 
This also gave Nell the opportunity to practice what it would be like in court, having to be discreet with secrets and learn all that was unsaid among members of the higher classes. The theatre wasn't anything like modern-day ideas of a civil, comfortable affair. The candles providing light would be sweltering in the summer, and the basic leaky roof meant it was freezing in the winter. Audience members could pop backstage at will to come on to the poor actresses getting ready in their dressing rooms. Just a total revolving door policy. If you're a gentleman, just strolled in and just did whatever you liked, basically. It's absolutely outrageous. Nell was adored as much as the actors and the theatre, and her booming voice and banter with the customers became well known. Her reputation was only matched by her apparent attractiveness to all the men who visited the theatre. She's described by contemporaries, including the diarist Samuel Pepys, as a real beauty. He wrote in his famous diary in 1667 that he saw pretty Nelly standing at her lodgings door on Drury Lane in her smock sleeves and bodice. She seemed a mighty pretty creature. And actually Samuel Pepys in his diary talks about Nell Gwynne a lot. Yep. And often just to say how like, wow, look at her, she's a bit of all that. Honestly, that's most of Samuel Pepys's diary. Like now we use it to learn about what boats were like or something. But I, I have read quite a lot of it and it's just endless like i saw mrs trout today and i did fondle with her most happily (laughs) well he liked nell so much that he ended up having an engraving of her above his desk he never actually got near her no (laughs) she's charismatic as well as pretty i think you know like that's part of her beauty and her attractiveness isn't it she was an expert at disarming drunk spoilt high society men luckily and uh, keeping up her cheery demeanour, no matter what was thrown at her. Anybody who has to navigate an interaction with a drunk idiot when out at a bar will know that to do so whilst keeping a sense of humour requires a particular skill of acting. (laughs) It's no surprise, therefore, that Nell was quickly spotted by the theatre manager and made the transition to the stage at the age of 14, because actually wrangling the audience was part of the skills that you needed, not just being able to remember your lines, presumably. Whilst she was one of the first to go from fruit seller to actor, she was qualified for the role as much as anyone else was. She'd been listening to the same plays day in, day out, and would have been familiar with the tricks of the trade. She's so young still at this stage. 14. 14. She was fearless and was an expert when it came to, as you said, having to ad-lib with the audience, which was a massive part of theatre in those days. Her striking red hair and green eyes helped her look unique amongst her fellow acting troupe. It was no easy job, though, Actors played over 50 different parts in a nine-month season, and they had to rehearse all day and then perform all night. When they weren't rehearsing or performing, they would be taken out by admirers, running kind of like their own publicity bandwagon. And it was actually these actors that were the draw to the theatre-goers, not the plays themselves. They went to go and see the star. That seems likely because Peeps also mentions that he will see one play so so many times like he'll probably go to the theater every night and he'll just see whatever's on so like being motivated to go and see one particular play at one theater over another when you know like restoration comedies are fun but they are really formulaic like you definitely know what you're going to get um yeah he's going to go to the place with like the the best prettiest actor actress on stage but also it's important to note that he was really critical about whenever Nell Gwynn tried to act in serious tragedies because they were kind of reserved for the the more fragile beauty. So right. he just wasn't convinced it with her playing anything but like a comedic role. 
Nell's introduction to the theatre was interrupted by the no-big-deal incidents of a bubonic plague in the Great Fire of London. Two small little footnotes in history there. (laughs) This closed the theatres for 18 months between 1665 and 1666, the fire year. We don't know when King Charles II first laid eyes on young Nell. He was a patron of the theatre that she played at, and so he was there on like plenty of occasions, could have been on any one of them that she caught his eye. Or maybe he saw her selling fruit. That's what a lot of like the popular renditions have her doing, selling oranges, and you know, he spots her. And, and like, she's wearing orange as well, like as part of the whole it's get very up. coherent message. Maybe he enjoyed her acting, or maybe he was introduced to her by his mistress Barbara, who is said to have befriended Nell. Maybe she wasn't on his radar at all during that period, who knows? What we do know is that during the closure, Nell joined the king in Oxford with her acting troupe to provide entertainments to the court. I mean, that seems like quite a lot. Like, maybe she was bubbling under as a potential mistress and like... But if you then have to go away to Oxford with a travelling troupe of actors, you may be like, oh, that's that's how I recognise her. Yeah. This provided yet another opportunity for Nell to learn the workings of the upper classes, and this time she could get first-hand experience of being part of a mini-court of the king up in Oxford. It is really interesting how, you know, obviously she wouldn't know how a court works, and if you just by circumstance have to be in this, like, little kind of mini-court in Oxford, you understand how things work. Yeah, it's like first-hand experience is obviously the best type of experience. How did it work? So it was just like all of the structures of hierarchy like who got to sit near him and yeah. like his, his you know like he has his knights of the bedchamber and garter and all that kind of thing like his closest most powerful people sure i mean there must have been so many kind of you know social faux pas that you could accidentally stumble into so she probably saw people do that and was like right noted don't eat an apple in front of the king or whatever yeah she does actually get very sophisticated at manipulating like laughter in the court, but also like genuine power. So she made a lot of friends and I bet it started around this time. So when the theatres reopened in 1666 after the fire, Nell came back a little older, a little wiser and ready to ascend the ranks. Her first job back on stage was as a starring role. And by 1667, she was doing at least seven different plays a month. The pace of the new material Nell had to learn, which was obviously made much harder by her illiteracy, allowed her to hone her skills of ad-libbing and have this kind of witty audience interaction. If anything, it was just a survival technique, because if she didn't remember her words, she had to think of something snappy. That rhymed, often. (laughs) She became a celebrity amongst the upper classes. If the king hadn't noticed Nell yet, he did when a new tragic comedy play called Secret Love or The Maiden Queen, I think it's actually called Secret Love or The Maiden Queen, is it? was performed at the King's Theatre in March 1667. Central to the play was a comedic performance by Nell Gwynne that was written especially for her by playwright John Dryden. Samuel Pepys noted in his diary going to see this new play, watching Nell's great performance, and the King was apparently there looking over, and um, in his diary he said, There is a comical part done by Nell that I can never hope ever to see the like done again by a man or a woman. It must have been amazing. I'm trying to think of something now where you see a performance, like an acting performance or, or anything, like a live show, you know, and you're like, wow, that was absolutely mind-blowing. Well, I don't mean to get too meta, but Gemma Arterton as Nell Gwynn <laughs> in the play Nell Gwynn was pretty fantastic. 
too much? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm thrilled for you, but I wasn't there to see it. So Sorry. it's, and, but that's actually one of the things about theatre, isn't it? It's like you got to see Gemma Arterton as Nell Gwynn. I didn't. And you mentioned that very regularly. To I me. do. And, but she's my close personal friend, Gemma Arterton, <laughs> for reasons that I spoke to her once at a festival. <laughs> And the king also loved this play as much as Samuel Pepys did, and he graced it with a personal honour, calling it, in capital letters, his play. Nell upped the ante with her rise in status by having a brief affair with Lord Buckhurst. He was in his late twenties and was one of the court wits, a true party boy of the time, and there were some party boys in the Restoration, so this is saying something. A sample anecdote. In 1663, a few years before meeting Nell, he went for dinner at the Cock Tavern in Covent Garden. They had a few wines, and when dinner was served, the waitresses carried the food in naked. They were naked. The the waitresses. Right, okay. Standard, I suppose. I know, I don't know who arranged this, but someone obviously dropped a word into the the person <laughs> who was serving the dinner. So the, the chaps and the naked waitresses, um, they had some wines together at that stage, and then they moved out onto the balcony, so lo- overlooking Covent Garden, I assume. The men started to pretend to say a church sermon. Lads, lads, lads. (laughs) Total lads. Uh, And they threw some bottles of their own wee at them. Oh, my God. I know. It's awful. And one of Buckhurst's friends, Sir Charles Sedley, he stripped off and he pretended pretended to have sex with his friends, not, not the waitresses. And eventually, uh, this all attracted an angry crowd of over a thousand people into a mob. Wow. Um, But luckily, because Bockhorst was a lord and it was all just japes, it was fine for him. His friend Sir Charles Sedley did spend a week in prison. Probably for good reason. Uh, Maybe just to sober up. So (laughs) a few years after this, he hadn't really learned anything, but um, he met Nellie and they started this affair. But unfortunately, it didn't end up being as good a kind of step up as she'd hoped because he couldn't really afford to keep a mistress. Right. It was actually an expensive thing. It wasn't like you might think of a modern mistress. Like you kind of had an obligation to set her up in her own place. Yeah, and obviously I'm sure that Nell wasn't going to take any kind of small fry. No, and I don't know how like true this is, but I read a book recently called The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, which is set like not loads of time after this, and I wonder if some of it's based on Nell Gwynn. And they um, kind of negotiate contracts. Like, often the woman won't sleep with the man even until they've agreed, like, well, you're going to be paying me, like, X pounds a week mm-hmm. so that I can live. Right. It's, I mean, it's surprising, it isn't is, it? It's yeah. very different to, like, our kind of, you know, more sneaky, organic dating mores of the present day. Oh, yeah. Well, obviously, men got to have their way. So, kind of, like, if mm. you were going to have a mistress, then that was actually probably part of what you just I expected. just would have thought they'd have gone away with anything, really. But it seems like, for the women, this was so much a career move that they do these negotiations and even sign contracts. I just find it remarkable. Speaking, you called her Nelly there. And Did I suppose... I? No, no, no. And that's, that's fine, because... It is interesting that Nell, she was known as Ellen, Nell, like she had loads of different names. None of them were pre-restoration abstinence Gwyn or whatever. But if we refer to her as like... (laughs) Abstinence Gwyn. Yeah, if we refer to her as Nellie or Nell or Ellen, Mm. like they're all interchangeable. And honestly, Gwyn is spelled every manner of ways you can spell a word, isn't it? So Buckhurst couldn't afford Nell and she had actually walked out on her job in the theatre company to live with him and she she had to basically go back, eat a bit of humble pie and ask for her job back. 
but she and Buckhurst surprisingly did stay friends throughout the rest of their lives, so I assume there weren't too many hard feelings between them. Meanwhile, Charles II uh, was known to be under petticoat influence, a great phrase, which means he listened far too much in the view of his courtiers to what his mistresses had to say. By 1667, the powerful Duke of Buckingham was well and truly sick of Charles's current girlfriend, Barbara, and he wanted her out. It seems like Buckhurst and Nell, Buckhurst, not Buckingham, so, you know, your japes lad, and Nell were still seeing each other a bit at this time, but not in a formal way. And so Buckhurst was basically bribed to hand her over to the king to be his mistress. Amazing. And Buckingham made this all happen. Buckhurst got some lucrative appointments and a surprisingly large amount of just straight cash to give up his girlfriend. I literally cannot quote the plays and ballads of the time that comment on the public nature of this trade because they are the filthiest things I have ever read. I swear to God. And we will get kicked out of all of the podcast hostings sites if i say them out loud really no, you're not just being prudish there like... oh no i'm maybe i'm a mediumly prudish person but i i can't tell you these strings of words they are so imaginatively crude that i, I i'm not even sure i will tell them to you off mic fine <laughs> <laughs> suffice to say all of london knew what was going on nelly was famous and the king was never unwatched the court gossiped like mad all day every day Stories swirled about when and how Nell and the King had their first rendezvous, but by January 1668, he was sending for her regularly. A certain William Chiffinch was the keeper of the King's closet, which basically meant he was like the gatekeeper to the back way into the palace. So he would check people in and out, and he would even keep a record of all of the people, all the mistresses that would be coming by. And he could actually use that log to check things, like if the King got an SDI, who it would be from his log, and he could make sure they were kicked out. That is phenomenal. Nell became a firm favourite of William and his wife, and so they made sure that they invited her to all of the fancy dinners, because this uh, keeper of the king's closet didn't just keep the back door open, he kind of had a bit to do with the king's social diary as well. So he did things like arrange for carriages to pick Nell up, and also for the king to discreetly (laughs) also go to Drury Lane to meet Nell at her own lodgings. 18-year-old Nell quickly settled into the role of being a minor mistress. And being a minor mistress to the king was an opportunity, but it wasn't a job, so she was still acting. Nell had a rival for the king's affections quite close to home. A fellow actress called Moll Davies was showing off an expensive ring that the king had apparently given to her. Nell was determined to triumph, so she invited Moll over to her rooms, supposedly to have a gawp at the ring, but instead she fed her with cakes laced with an extremely strong laxative. So then Moll went off for her little meeting with the king, smug in her newfound status, and obviously that night romance didn't blossom, and instead Moll found herself firmly not the favourite anymore. Nest of vipers, isn't it? So over the next few months, people out in town began to notice that Nell was appearing less frequently on the stage. Maybe her natural charms won the day, or maybe she just successfully poisoned all of her rivals, but she was becoming a particular favourite of the king. It wasn't because she was a sweet and shy flower, as we've said. Her nickname for him was Charles III, because she'd already shagged two previous men called Charles. (laughs) I love how she's making, she's owning that as hers, not as his. Yeah, I know, it's brilliant, isn't it? 
When she'd been seeing Charles III for a year, she moved to the fancy neighbourhood of Lincoln's Inn, which is about as leafy as central London gets, even now, as it's an inn of court, and there were rules in place limiting how much building could go on. In this house in 1670, she gave birth to her son, who was named Charles after his father. A child is a nice thing to have in general, I hear, but for Nellie this was a brilliant career move too. As the mother of the king's child, she would be supported for the rest of her life, or at least the rest of the king's life. Being the king's bastard son did not rule you out of power and glory in public life, either. The only weird thing is that the king already had two other sons called Charles. I think he had many, like many illegitimate children, but he would probably pick out which ones he would favour. Maybe based on like his relationship with their mother. Absolutely. But at least I know he at least had two other sons. And it's Charles. also worthwhile to note here, he was not having any heirs through his wife, Catherine. That who was is childless. worth mentioning because he had so many, like dozens of illegitimate children. I, I just wanted to throw in that royals made weirder naming decisions than this. Um, Prince Rupert of the Rhine. If you ever get the chance to go to the National Portrait Gallery and look at a picture of him, he is so fit. Like, you can't believe that he could be... You swipe right, would you? I would swipe right on Prince Rupert of the Rhine. He had uh, a baby with his actress mistress, and he named her Ruperta after himself. I just don't think Ruperta is a name. No. This comes full circle because Ruperta's mother Peg lost her brother in a duel conducted over whether she or Nellie was prettier. Wow. It's very sad, but it's also very restoration. Nell went back to the stage after her son was born, but not for long. She was about to retire from acting at the grand old age of 21 to be the king's love on a full-time basis. She moved from Lincoln's Inn, which was just kind of too far from the king, to Pall Mall, which is lovely and convenient for St James's Park and Whitehall, where the king held his court. As for the house, wily Nellie refused to accept a lease that the king paid for, and instead insisted on owning a freehold property of her own, which would have been quite the ask at the time in terms of a mistress saying how she wanted her own way. One was found for her just opposite where Charles lived, and they turfed out the presumably quite grumpy Earl of Scarsdale. It's still today the only house on the south side of the street which isn't owned by the Crown, although it's now offices. Not luxury flats, at least. Well, I suppose it used to be luxury flats and yeah. now it's offices. The house was brilliantly located as its garden backed onto that of the king. And apparently the king and his darling would have some very familiar discourse over this back wall, which sounds like an innuendo. I, I mean, think it was literally. just literally chit-chats, but the, it was very friendly chit-chats. Probably quite saucy. I can't imagine like the king trundling out of the back of the garden, like pssst and going over the wall to... I think he wouldn't just be like, now can you just come over? No, she had a little terrace, apparently, so she could see over the wall, and he could sort of look up at her. Right. It's from a little eyewitness description of um, someone who was super grossed out by this. Like, he did not enjoy the saucy familiar discourse. I can't remember who it was who said it. But he was walking with the king. The king was on his way to see Barbara. Right. And chatted with Nell on the way. And I just think that encompasses how pleasant the king's life was. It was like endless round of going between girlfriends. Yeah, the mistresses for neighbours everywhere. Yeah, it's actually interesting to me. You meant we just mentioned that she was twenty one at this time, and you're like, sure, okay, the king has like a twenty one year old mistress or eighteen year old mistress. But another thing he doesn't seem to have done is actually discriminate against like women based on their age, because his partners he kept them for life. You know, but he never stopped seeing Barbara. 
even when like she's significantly older than Nell. And you know this idea like, oh, you know, only very young women would be the ones that the king would choose. He didn't he just doesn't roll like that. Like he just chooses the women he likes. He likes these sort of headstrong women with personalities and he sticks with them forever. All of them. All of them forever. Yeah, I know. I'm not saying, you know, it, d- it depends whether you think monogamy is like the ideal situation. Definitely, he's not a monogamous man, but he really stands by the women that he chooses. And I don't think he was that kind of off with her head about it if they had their own affairs. No, I mean, it depends. It seems to depend. I think right. we'll get to some of that about whether he took it more personally than others. It depends how like in love with them he was or whether he just really liked them and cared about them. But you know what I mean? The stereotype that he would just get a new 18-year-old yeah. mistress and chuck out the 30 or, or the 40-year-old mistress. He doesn't do that. Charles was definitely a different king than your usual. Yeah. So while the streets of Whitehall were absolutely teeming with Charles's mistresses, it, like they probably walked past each other tons of times a day because there were genuinely so many of them boarded around there. The Queen was having a different sort of time of it. So Charles's affairs were openly conducted. And as we said before, he liked to appoint his posher mistresses to the court to be ladies-in-waiting for his Queen. The Queen hated this. She had entered into this marriage thinking that it was a love match, basically, and she had a rude awakening. When Barbara, the main mistress before Nell came along, um, she was presented to the Queen by the King, and Catherine fainted. She was so shocked that this was being done to her. It was a really bullying thing to do, and the King absolutely like forced it through. The Queen said, please don't do this, you know, begging him, and he just said, look, you're gonna have this woman as your lady-in-waiting, so just get on with it, which is very against, you know, this fun-loving, laid-back guy that we're expected to believe he, him to be. He was fairly devoted to her, not in a monogamous way, but he was never kind of, oh, cart her off to reign alone. He was fairly loyal to her in some sense. You're right. I just think that that thing of, like, when she was so upset about not wanting to have, like, the king's mistress in her literal bedroom all the time. But she did eventually give up pretending that the king and her had a great relationship, and she kind of withdrew from public life. As we said before, they didn't have any children, And it led to various courtiers lobbying the king to just divorce her, but he wouldn't do it. And she tried to be a devoted wife to him, which often backfired. Like once he said, oh, I'm going to go to bed, love. I've got a bit of a cold. I feel a bit ill. So she heard of this and she rushed to his bedside to take care of him. But the housekeeper rushed to the king to tell him that the queen was on her way, which meant that Nell, who he was just having some time with... (laughs) had to jump out, kind of roll under the bed and hide, proper kind of rom-com. Uh, rom-com? <laughs> and, carry on. Yeah, carry, carry, on, carry on queening. And, and the queen entered the bedroom in kind of a regal fashion. And then she immediately spotted Nell's slipper on the floor and apparently said, ha, huh, I'll be off then. I see it is not you that has the cold. It doesn't really scan as a joke, but I think that in the moment, that's probably the best you could do. Yeah, at least history has her having a little bit of a witty kind of repartee rather than just bursting into tears and running out. That's true. The housekeeper who tipped them off was Mrs. Chiffinch. Really? Right. So she's heavily involved in all these things and she seems to be like a big advocate of or like pal of Nell's. So we've established the Queen was not a rival for the King's affections, but there were plenty of rivals. As well as Barbara, who had done very well for herself in her career as a mistress, there was a French duchess called Louise Renée de Penancourt de Queral. <laughs> it really does. Um, actually, the way that the king met um, this lady Louise, Louise, shall Louise we? please can we? 
Um, the people in the court called her Carwell or Cartwheel because they couldn't say Carwell. So the king had gone on a visit to see his sister, who he really loved. He like super loved his sister. And um, when she, when he was leaving her to go back home, she said, I want to give you a present, just like any jewel from my jewel cupboard or whatever. And he was like, rather than a jewel, I'd like to take your friend Louise home with me to his sister. It's a bit, it's a bit out there. But she like, his sister obviously said no. But then later Louise got sent over as like a diplomatic present to him. Right. And I'm sure Louise person. didn't mind. Well, it seems like she made the most of it. She was a very serious person, which kind of presented a lot of potential for Japes, for Nell, the funny witty one. When Louise came into the court in mourning one day for like some random French night she had never even known, weeping and wearing black, Nell saw an opportunity. She came in the next day also dressed in mourning, claiming to be weeping over the death of the ruler of Tartary. When someone asked how she was related to the ruler of Tartary, she said, it's in the same way as Louise was related to the French knight. Everyone, especially the king, found this hilarious. I think the joke there is probably more in the performance than the punchline. You know, it's often the way, isn't it? You do have to be there. But Louise and Nell became bitter enemies over this. Nell is recorded as saying, this duchess acts the fine lady. She says she is related to everyone in France. As soon as any great nobleman dies, she goes into mourning. Right, if she is of such nobility, why is she a whore? She ought to die of shame. As for me, it's my trade. I don't set myself up as anything better. I didn't do an accent there. I hope that's all right. That's fine. I, I, I kind of, Nancy, Noel Gwynn is something I don't want to hear from you. And Nancy from Oliver. Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can do it. For Louise's part, she wasn't put off, and she continued to reinforce her image as someone of a great noble birth, going into mourning for every king or prince or princeling who died. This was a strategy to become seen as a potential candidate for actual wifehood if something were to happen to Queen Catherine. As a French Catholic, Louise was not popular with the people. Once, Nellie borrowed her carriage to take a journey, and the people recognised Louise's initials on the door, and so they all started to shout insults and, like, kick and shove the carriage, at which point Nell stuck her head out the window to shout, Pray, good people, be civil. I am the Protestant whore. See, actually, that's quite funny. She loved this kind of, like, witty banter, and you can imagine all these people that love Nell, this celebrity, were like, Hey, yeah. it's Nell! <laughs> Oh, on the topic of the word whore, <laughs> I, I, I want to go a bit meta and talk about how historians have written about Nell because, you know, we, we use that word and I just feel like we're not using it in a, like a mean, horrible way. Like, I don't think there's anything morally wrong with Nell. I think she just hustled her way to a good career. But um, like my book, I'm not, I don't know if I will name names because it's not a horrible book, but it's a great example of how the topic of Nell appeals to like the, you know, the, the male historical gaze, I would say. The Nell of this book is financially self-sufficient, funny and self-confident, and in like no way a vulnerable person. Meanwhile, the king is easygoing and affectionate. This author describes how Nell truly loved the king for himself and was never jealous of his other mistresses and was overall this like real fun relief with her salt of the earth ways and zero emotional needs. He talks about Nellie being faithful to the king after he had died. This is a fantasy of complete sexual availability coupled with the absence of any like inconvenient hurt done to the women. And it's just typical of how men write about sex workers, especially working class ones in my view. Charles II was not a total lad who lots of women fell for because he was just so fun and nice. He was the king. 
He had unlimited resources. Um, he literally bought Nell, if you recall, or Buckingham did. Um, and Barbara, meanwhile, is, um, in my book at least, described as this cynical, greedy and demanding woman who the king suffered from. I doubt it. Um, we follow this line that Nell was like a simple, fun-loving gal who loved the king, and it's just pure nonsense. She was, to be honest, cynical as well. Like, the king and his courtiers were cynical. Why do male historians write about Nell Gwynne at all when they'd never bother writing a book about boring old Catherine of Braganza weeping over slippers? Is because, for a start, they get to write about, you know, fun topics like topless Nell Gwynne and put pictures of her on the cover and I think it reinforces a sort of comfortable image of the power dynamics of buying and selling the bodies of women well that is a very valid rant (laughs) and I think you're right it's very easy to kind of um, paint this picture of Nell as being this fun time lass and you know never before any harm or trauma whereas actually she was just one of many mistresses who had to come from like a child prostitution to make something of herself and obviously it is easy to describe her as this, this completely easygoing and not affected at all by her experience. The book I read which was by a descendant of Nell Gwynne um, kind of is the same in terms of it all being kind of rom com and it doesn't really pause much to discuss the clear power imbalances between Charles and Nell. Again, Catherine is pitied and the other mistresses are vilified because Nell is the, her- the heroine. The female characters other than Nell are almost like just 1D props for the story. And whilst I agree that the king wasn't like a harmless lad, I would defend it by saying that he did have a special bond with Nell And this probably comes from the fact that he grew up kind of in a poor situation himself. He didn't have any time for kind of classist snobbery. So he's not your usual king. Other kings just wouldn't have a lowly mistress because of the status involved there. Or they would, but it wouldn't be a public matter. Absolutely. And a contemporary wrote in his diary um, about the fact that one old Duchess of Richmond said she couldn't abide to converse with Nell and the rest of the gang. And Nell told this to the king, who replied that those who he lay with were fit company for the greatest woman in the land, which was like a democratic, if not backhanded, compliment. By 1671, back to the story, uh, Nellie was giving birth to a second son of Charles's named James after the king's brother. Louise, meanwhile, had taken the opportunity while Nell was off being pregnant to become the main mistress. She'd taken an Anne Boleyn-style approach to getting him to fall in love with her, i.e. refusing to sleep with him for as long as possible, until finally agreeing just at the moment he seemed to be about to give up. The titles Charles heaped on Louise and the son she had with him seems to have finally riled up Nell, who felt left behind. She was with the king one day when he asked to see their sons. She called out to the eldest one, "'Come here, little bastard, and see your father!' (laughs) Charles said, why, Nellie, do you call our son so? She sweetly retorted, well, I've no other title for him. Sass. (laughs) She got her way. Her son Charles was made Baron Headington and the Earl of Burford. Helpfully, they also got a surname at last, Beauclair. Louise, who kind of thinks of herself as top dog, was threatened with being replaced in the king's affections by a woman from Rome called Hortense. He met her when he was in exile from England during the Cromwell years, and he'd even proposed to her back then, but she turned him down. Nell wasn't much threatened by this new rival, and she knew that she would never be queen. Her job was just to be there for the king, and it worked. 
whilst he did fall head over heels for various women, he could always return to Nell whenever he felt like it. And it was largely for her talent for making life that little bit better. She was amazing at it. On one occasion, she invited Charles to go fishing during a river trip with a visiting prince. Charles loved to fish, so he readily agreed. Nell's servants brought out the fishing kit, which had gold fish hooks and silk nets. The king started fishing with this luxurious kit, and after a while pulled his line in, only to find six ready-fried fish on it. Everyone laughed, and Nelly said, It's only right that a great king should have unusual privileges. The visiting prince cast his line in too, and came back with a purse containing a gold box. Inside it was a portrait of a court beauty. It turned out that Nell had arranged for divers to wait in the river and attach these things to the fishing hooks. Is that magical? It's so good. And it's kind of this imaginative japes that really sets her apart, isn't it? And, you know, there's some logistics in there. Totally. Unfortunately, the year 1680 was a horrible year for Nell. Her younger son, James, died at only the age of eight. And he was away in Paris being tutored. So she wasn't even with him at the end. Nell shut herself away to grieve in private. As for Charles, he was finally starting to settle down a little bit and stop with the endless affairs. The beautiful Hortense had uh, ended up sleeping with another man, and so Charles demoted her in his affections. Louise was back on top, that meant, although, strangely, it wasn't really as a lover. In England, there wasn't the role of an official mistress like there was in France, but it was still a high-status role with a lot of political potential. After all, you had the ear of the king. And Nell spent a lot more nights with him and she lobbied for her own friends and uh, which was like small things like getting an actor his right to act again after a ban or things like putting in a good word for those dukes and earls with whom she'd made friends. She could not hold a candle though to the scheming of Louise who was a lot more the political and social equal of Charles. In 1682, Charles had a stroke, and so the next three years were much more quiet than the previous life he'd lived, but still wasn't any less luxurious. And as ever, during this time, he was surrounded by the women who vied to make his life as easy and delightful as possible. The mistresses spent quite a lot of time together as well, because they would all sit around with him in the evenings. You know, he wasn't seeing them privately. There wasn't any pretense about it. No. In February 1685... Charles died. Nell tried to get into the bedchamber to see him as he lay ill, but she was rebuffed. Queen Catherine couldn't face seeing him suffer, and she stayed away. Nell and the other mistresses were all forbidden from going into public mourning for the king, which must have been especially hard for Louise, who loved going into public mourning. (laughs) My book says that if the death of Master James, Nellie's son, had broken her heart, the death of Charles ripped out her spirit and a spiritless Nelly was no Nelly at all. On 6th of February, 1685, at the age of 35, to all intents and purposes, Nelly died with her king, her man, her lover, her best friend, her Charles III. This is what I mean about this very male-centric view of her life. Like, I'm sure she was fond of him, and she was gutted when he died, but come on, her man. Yeah, (laughs) it is a little bit like, and then she was nothing. Right. At 35. What did happen, though, was the money dried up, and Nell did write to the new king, James II, for help. She had known him for a long time too, and they got on well. Her little son, who died, was named after him. She wrote to the new king, 
and said that Charles had told me before he died that the world should see by what he did for me that he had both love and value for me. By saying this, she was kind of intimating that Charles meant maybe that the king should give her a title, or maybe it was just a reminder that the king had held her in high esteem. James did end up giving her a pension of £1,500 a year, which was a lot of money. Mm. Nell changed a lot around this time. As happens to us all, she was getting older. The writers who used to praise her beauty now just came out and called her ugly and haggard, which is nice. I mean, that kind of praise for your beauty is always a double-edged sword. She was often ill, more and more seriously as the 1680s wore on. Her old friend Buckingham, who had arranged her relationship with Charles, died in 1687. Nell left her house to live with a neighbour called Hannah Grace. She'd been saved from renewed poverty by James, and she was able to afford full-time nurses. She had many friends, and of course her surviving son and her sister. When Nell drew up her will, she left plenty to charity, including, strangely, to poor Catholics, given what a poisonous time for Catholics this was. She gave £200 to her sister, but as Nell got weaker over time, she suddenly summoned someone to take a witnessed note saying she gave Rose an extra £200. I can just really imagine her sitting there thinking, oh, when Rose finds out when I'm dead that I only gave her £200, she's just going to be so annoyed. She's not even worth it. Uh, so she gave her more. And at that point, she sank into sleep in her bed. The next day, at the age of just 37, on the 14th of November, 1687, Nell died in her bed. Still the most famous woman in England. I think that Nell has such a legacy as being... And I, we discussed that, sure, it's convenient to have her being this kind of fun-loving, whatever. But her legacy as being that really adds some colour to otherwise a really dreary kind of points in history, arguably, restoration aside. So I'm really grateful that we have this character. And I almost yeah. would rather that we didn't have such a horrible story of her traumatic childhood and rather we hear about her japes in court and we are you know like we're projecting our opinions about what that childhood was like and how traumatized she was I, you know i think there needs to be space for that because when you're talking about women in history there's not that much information a lot of the time and she's the most famous woman in england during the restoration period so she's the one we know the most about really i probably disagree that like i think the restoration was a time of like loads of immense hope and fun and joyfulness like it, there are tensions in there but i think that's why she becomes such a popular figure She's not even the main mistress at most times of her kind of career as a mistress, but she's the one who the public love because she's, you know, she's a talented actress and they could, many of them have seen her on stage, but she captures the spirit of the age. That's exactly right. She was like, she was a democratic kind of would-be queen. The mm. people loved her. Usually the people just have their royalty kind of on a, on a high horse. They don't really know anything about it. Nell was one of the people. She ascended to be, you know, de facto queen. And the people loved her for it. She was really one of the only characters that you, I can think of, at least, who, in this period of history, was able to climb socially from being, you know, a lowly wench to becoming, you know, in the high society. Yeah, and we've seen how that was facilitated by Charles because not every king or queen will allow things like that to happen. The person who was needed at that time was Nell. And I bet you 20 years earlier, under... Cromwell a different type of person would have been very well known and then you know later when James becomes king he just turns over a whole new leaf and everything gets more serious again mm, but we should also note that Nell's personality and character made that she stood out amongst the Barbaras and the Louises 
there's a reason we talk about Nell. That does tend to be because her personality is so infectious and so lols, basically. That's definitely true. And, like, the actual legacy that she has on London... You mentioned all those pubs right at the beginning... Like, a lot of people have drunk in a Nell Gwynn without ever knowing who Nell Gwynn is. And it's partly because she's nice to put on, like, a sign over a bar, isn't she? It's nice to have a portrait of her on the wall because she's beautiful. But also she is she is pub spirit, isn't she? That's exactly she's right. She's totally down to earth and fun and likes to party. Thank you for listening to Fierce City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world and home, London. If you like our podcast, then please subscribe or write us a review. You can also email us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch or just let us know what topics you'd be interested to hear. You can also tweet us at FierceCityPod and find us on Instagram. As ever, our theme music is composed by Joshan Mahmood and you can find out more about his music at joshanmahmood.com. Fierce City was written and produced by the two voices you've heard. Thanks for listening. <laughs>